Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Kenny Babyface Edmonds is a pillar of R&B. His discography is vast and varied, and in my opinion, he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And as a producer, he knows how to get the most natural vocal performances from the best singers. I'm talking powerhouse vocalists like Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, Ariana Grande, and Stevie Wonder. As a label owner, Babyface created LaFace Records in the late 80s with famed record exec L.A. Reid. Together, they went on to release classic albums from Outkast, TLC, and Usher, among others. Although Babyface's career is most often associated with pop and R&B hits, he started writing songs in the singer-songwriter tradition, pulling from influences as surprising as James Taylor and the Beatles. He taught himself guitar in sixth grade and started writing songs about young love and heartbreak. Many of those experiences served as inspiration for the hundreds of songs he's written since. On today's episode, I talked to Babyface about those early childhood memories, and he plays a song he wrote in high school that he considers to be the best song he's ever written, and it's never been released. He also talks about how Bootsy Collins christened him Babyface, and how his nickname made female fans flock to him at the end of shows. He also reveals how he was on the verge of making a new album with Whitney Houston just a month before she died. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my conversation with Babyface from the Village Studios in L.A. How long have you been playing guitar? I started playing when I was in sixth grade. So I picked it up. Uh, it, was my, it wasn't my brother's guitar, but it was... He had a little a band that he was in, and so the uh, 
guitar player, let him use an acoustic guitar, brought it to the house and told us not to touch it. How did that go? I touched it. <laughs> Anytime you tell someone, don't touch something, that's what I'm trying to do with my kids. Don't touch the piano. Don't touch the guitar. <laughs> right, yeah. Don't ever. <laughs> it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. How impactful were your, your older brothers on, on your music sensibility? One brother in particular, Melvin, he was impactful in the sense that he brought in that guitar. He also was in a band called the uh, Soul Innovations, and and he was like the front man, and it was it was just incredible to watch him. He had a great voice, and I think that's that clearly made me think that maybe I could do something like that. You know, yeah, I wasn't sure though. What was it like seeing him perform? It was great because he was a great performer, and he was like he could sing, but he also and at the time, this is like. 69, 70. This is like when James Brown is hot and uh, and the Temptations and everybody. So you had to sing as well as you had to also be able to scream uh, and dance like James Brown. So he used to do all of that. And and it was pretty incredible to watch, to see that. And and ultimately he ended up joining a group after seven. And it's funny when I think of who he was in after seven opposed to who he was as a kid because he had so much more energy and just dancing and everything as a kid so it's interesting what do you think the evolution was for him from fiery james brown kind of it's interesting uh i think he he did it really well but then there was some other uh people in the neighborhood this guy named albino manson who was uh really good at james brown so they used to kind of spar off at each other and and albino kind of beat him one day so i think he decided i'm just gonna sing (laughs) so doing them splits that wasn't easy yeah was it a competitive thing with you guys? Like when you saw him, was it was it like oh, I want to I want to do that, but better? It was never competitive to me. I, I I always thought that he had the better voice. I always thought my brother Kevin had the better voice. I was always just kind of like songwriter and and just you know whatever anybody can make my song sound good. That I was always easy, comfortable to be in the back. So it was I didn't have to take the lead. So in that sense, I, I never competed. What were some of the earliest songs you you loved? I think one of my first memories, uh, I remember in sixth grade, there was, I mean, obviously I loved the Jackson 5 when they came out, but I also was, uh, loved Smokey Robinson, The Miracles. And and as a matter of fact, um, one of the first songs I sang in front of a class, I sang two two songs, this song called I'm a Girl Watcher and uh, Smokey Robinson's Here I Go Again. And, um, me and like three other guys, we created a little singing group and sang in front of our class in sixth grade. And that was also the same year that I, between sixth and seventh grade, when I uh, sang for my brother's band, um, they had an event at my high school, one of those mixers, and they needed somebody to sing a Michael Jackson song. So my brother auditioned myself and my brother Kevin. And I, I won. I don't know how I won, but I won. <laughs> and then, you know, that I, I sang Who's Loving You in front of this crowd. And that's, and the thing that's it's always funny, I can remember um, for the longest time when I would hear I Want You Back, because that's the music that they would play as I walked on the stage. And I'd get so nervous, just the thought of hearing that and having to walk up on that stage. I'd just be, I'd turn into a mess. My heart would be, start beating hard. And every now and then when I hear it, dun, 
It could still get me just a little bit to this day. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's one of the most joyous songs of all time. It is. It's like, oh, showtime. <laughs> so do you think do you think you've ever gotten over that sort of I don't know if it's stage fright or I think not. I think it's an interesting thing, those stage fright and and, and those triggers, those things that make you that you can't control. And and I think ultimately I thought I learned how to control it. And then a few years ago I did Dancing with the Stars. And I found myself right back in that same place where I couldn't get rid of the nerves. Yeah. You know. And then for the longest time, to this day, there's a song that we did. I did a remix of the X-Files theme. And so now when I hear X-Files, I get a little nervous. <laughs> that song's been kicking my ass for years anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's terrifying. So it's it's funny. It's funny how, how these triggers can work for you yeah music, music triggers yeah so Smokey Robinson that's a great in terms of a songwriter I, I think we forget how Smokey was amazing and just and he just did it so natural that I think that's how we forget because it was like a conversation for him yeah you know and so he clearly was a uh, huge inspiration in that way yeah yeah because you were playing guitar did you gravitate more towards that music, like a Bill Withers or anything like that? Or I liked Bill Withers, but when I was playing, when I started playing, Bill Withers wasn't around. Yeah, and I didn't learn how to play the guitar to learn what other guitar players were doing. My brother, he come on, he came home and played these chords. Uh, uh, He started that. It wasn't that part. I added that later. But, but it was first that. And I, I was like, looked at, I was like, that's crazy. And then um, I would go and when he'd leave, I'd go in, in another room and, and pick up the guitar and try to do it. Now, the thing is, he was right-handed. So it was a right-handed guitar. So that's why, to this day, I play upside down. Yeah. Uh, and so at one point he came to me and said, when he finally did catch me playing it, he walked in and he goes, I don't care what you do, you will never be able to play that as good as me. And that made me, that pushed me to work harder at doing it. And unfortunately, Melvin's not here anymore, but I wanted to ask him, because I always thought that was mean for him to say. And But at the same time, it just occurred to me just here recently, maybe he was saying that because I was left-handed. Right. And I would never be able to finger it the way that he could finger it. And right. so I won't get it quite the same. Now it's a mystery. <laughs> it's it's wild that you play so like left-handed as beautifully. I just, I don't know how you do it. Well, I think it's it's however you pick up anything. If, if you don't know the rules, then the rules don't count. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There are certain things just that might be easier for me to do, but there's certain things that are, Harder for me to do when it's a right-handed you know, yeah. thing. So, so you just got to figure out, figure your way around it. But I think once I realized you played upside down, and when I listened to your music, your songs sound in a way so different that sometimes I feel like, oh, it makes sense that it's upside down. Like I, it's it's huh. the chords are less rooted in the bass. You know, it's just it's just yeah. interesting. I hear a looseness. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's pro there's probably something to that. I think 
I always like to say, even when I play and learn things on the piano I play, I'm not really a piano player. I, I learn things to support my songwriting. And that's what I did um, then. I turned that into my first song. Yeah. You know, um, the song you just played. The song I just played. That was like, I ended up. I didn't write. Um, here I go again. I go. Here I go. Falling in love again. That was my first song, and and I wrote it for a girl, because I was like in love and stuff. And, and so the guitar really was just an instrument for me to get these songs out of me, and so I wasn't really trying to learn any songs that were on the radio. At all. It was all just songwriting, so I was just learning chords to support all my little songs. Wow. And for you, songwriting was about writing songs for the girls you were in love with. Yeah, the, the girls. Crushes on. Yeah, crushes on. And, and it, was pu- it was purely kind of an escape, so to say. Wow. It wasn't anything but that. I didn't think they were going to go anywhere, but that was the that was the drive. And you would have been like 11, 12, 10, 11, 12? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So started in sixth grade, start picked up picked it up then. Then by the time eighth grade came, I was kind of in full swing, and then had a number of little bands I was part of, and a lot happened in a short amount of time. I was when I look back at it, it's kind of crazy to think of of how much we did as a little bands because obviously you will not find today thirteen and fourteen year olds having a band. Yeah. And trying to play music that way and yeah. you know, uh not even in, in 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 rock, you know. Yeah. It's hard to find that period. And and back in the day for us that was we were all trying to be in a band. Yeah. You know. How did you get to Manchild? Which was your first group you put a record out with. Yeah, in in high school starting as a sophomore, I joined this well, created this band uh, that we called Tarnished Silver. And we played from uh, my sophomore year to my senior year. We played everything. We were like the go-to band for the mixers, the the proms, and everything. And in fact, we had did it so much one year. I think it was in my last year as a senior. There was another guy that that was challenging us. Decided to challenge us because uh, he said he wanted to play at the the mixer that year, the homecoming. And I said, I'm fine. We don't, but people were saying, well, now we think we want Tarn Silver to play. So I think their band was called Destiny. And so we actually had a, a school vote about what band will play for the uh, homecoming. And we won. It was quite disappointing to him. But um, <laughs> Dave Mann was his name. But we played, we played all those things. And that, that was playing these colleges. On the weekends, we played for, um, you know, IU and Purdue and Ball State. So we were, like, semi-popular. So in my senior year, the drummer that we had, a guy named Rayford Griffin, who actually was a really good drummer, he went on to play with Jean-Luc Ponty and George Duke and, and Stanley Clark. So he was an incredible player. He was an incredible player. He was, like, way too good for us. So he was in our band, and he was getting ready to go away to college. And then... Our saxophone player, he was getting ready to go away to college, so the band was going to break up. And it was my senior year, and, and all of a sudden I woke up, I realized, and my other friends, they were all getting ready to go to college as well, and I, I hadn't prepared. I was just like being in a band. Yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. And we had this one last show 
that we did at a friend's house. And one of the guys, Rayford Griffin, his brother, uh, Reggie Griffin, was a man-child. And he was an excellent musician. Like, um, he played sax, he played keyboards, clavinet, and he played a guitar. Excellent player. And uh, he came and saw our show. And he asked me that night if I would consider joining Manchild. And so he saved my life at that point because I had no plans. No band. And, and no band. And, <laughs> and I did not know that they were on, on track to getting a record deal. So I really, at high school, the year I graduated, I joined a band and uh, that had a record deal. That's wild. So, and so I got really lucky, you know. And then I want to play. I want to play one of the songs off the first record that yeah. that you wrote and and sang okay. on. <laughs> Funky situation. Oh. You guys were going, man. <laughs> so I actually wrote this when I was in Tarnish Silver, and uh, so I wrote that in high school. Because it was part, it was one of our, one of the songs that we would actually play, you know, when we when we do these gigs. So we were obviously inspired. We were heavily inspired by, like Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. Then we were also inspired by the uh, Chick Corea and and, um, and Stanley. Return Clark. to Forever. Stuff. Return to Forever. And so we we were like, so we tried to be jazzy too. So that's what because it goes to a little jazzy. Part. You were real. <laughs> and then inspired by Stevie Wonder too, and. All that, so all that was kind of end up being mixed. Not done very well, but still, the the ideas was was there. But it it was part of uh, being a little confused, not really knowing how to put it all together, not knowing how to make a hit, not knowing how to make something commercial, but just yeah. trying to make that we thought it was commercial. But that that was one of the first songs that you know that Manchild took from me. That it's funny to hear it right now, and I can. I definitely wrote that on the acoustic guitar. Um, wow. And I was trying to be like, I was trying to be funky, you know, funky situation. But we were so influenced by Earth, Wind & Fire. Yeah. So influenced that I went to see Earth, Wind & Fire with the silvers and stylistics, and I actually had the chance to interview Maurice White. And, you interviewed Maurice White? Yeah. In the 70s? Yes. I had lied and said I was a news reporter and, and got in to meet him, and me and my friend Daryl. We were so into them. Daryl Simmons. Daryl yeah. Simpson. So we watched the show. And they were kind of new then, so nobody was completely familiar. It was more of a black thing. They hadn't quite crossed over yet. Right. So when we would go, we'd learn their songs and play their songs live. We'd take their whole routines and do it. And we did it so well that actually a couple of years later, there was a friend of ours that went to was going to school in Boston. And he called us in a frantic and said, you know, you guys need to sue this group. I just saw this group and uh, they stole all of your songs and stole your whole act. You need to sue them. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Earth, Wind & Fire. <laughs> <laughs> that's how Earth, Wind & Fire we were. So when, when I listen to that record, that's what I hear. I hear I, I hear all those influences of from Earth, Wind & Fire to Return to Forever to... Uh, Stevie Wonder, and uh, it's it's all it's all mixed. Together. And it, it sounded a little Parliament too, like just really on the maybe like a, some Bootsy solo records or something. It sounded very mm, not quite yet. 
I think later on, we, these records never came out, but later on, I think I was, like Reggie was definitely Parliament influenced, but I think we never really messed with that. We never, and that's the interesting thing, because this band, Manchild, I always think that I messed the group up when I joined it. <laughs> Why is that? Because the band was so funky before. And I was just learning funk. That was real funk. Yeah, that was, it wasn't all the way there. But it was trying to be there. But I, I was just learning it. And the thing is, when we were in Tarnished Silver, before I was asked to uh, join, we used to play all these, as I told you before, we used to play all, all these colleges. And they were always more of a white audience. Right. So everything we played, all they wanted to do was dance and drink and dance. And so we thought we were amazing. We were like, this is, there's nothing, there's no crowd we can't win. Before, before we're over, they're dancing and they're running around. And, you know, it's, it's the best <laughs> audience we had. And we just thought we had, we was the shit. Then one day, we got a gig to play for Tech High School, which was a all-black school. And we got it to play for their prom. And we went and started playing. And they sat there with their arms folded, looking at us like, like, what is this shit? <laughs> you know? And we even pulled out one of the Earth, Wind, Fire songs, I think Devotion, thinking that was going to get them. Nope. What is this? As soon as we stopped playing, they put on the Ohio players on the, the DJ. And they was all on the floor dancing. So, and like realized how, how unblack we were at that point. <laughs> And how funky, we didn't know anything about black. And then that same time period, we were asked to go down to this little club called the In Crowd, which is where Manchow played. And they let us come down there to open up for them. We we performed and they were kind to us. And then next up came out Manchow. They This is my first time seeing them. And when they came out, there was like dry ice coming out and they did this version of um, a Chaka Khan, a Rufus and Chaka Khan. I'm a backbone, yeah, I'm a woman, I'm a backbone. And so the chorus on that was, I'm a woman, I'm a backbone. And they came out, I'm a man child, and I'm a motherfucker. I'm a man. <laughs> and it was just so funky and so, and it was like, oh my God, I didn't know. And then they also included you know, return to forever licks, and they they yeah. were so they were very good. And Chucky Bush was the keyboard player, who was who played with us for a little bit. So he was everybody was, they were like next level musicians. Yeah. I thought that's when they were at their best. And when I joined the band, I think they were looking to stretch and go further, so um, and try to be a little more melodic and go other places. They had a um, the lead singer was a guy named Flash Farrell who was one of the best front men I've ever known wow. and ever seen. He was like Mick Jagger. He was like, he had a rough voice. So the songs that I was writing wasn't necessarily for him. And I was I was sing, writing these soft love songs and and he wasn't really feeling it. And, and neither was, I think, Bobby, the drummer. And they kind of like didn't really completely like it. In fact, they gave me a nickname, which wasn't a nice nickname, but Waterfall. Really? Yeah, because all you do is waterfall music, you know. And you bring, stop bringing that fucking ass waterfall music. And that's all I knew what to do, except every now and then try to do funky situations. <laughs> uh, 
but they were like such one of the best funk bands and I had ever seen and never heard at that particular point. And I feel like had they stayed, kept that direction, then it might have been something else for them. And I think I changed that direction. We ended up getting a hit song that I wasn't really a part of, especially for you. That was that did well. But I don't think I, I think it was meant it was a place for me to learn how to how to write music. It helped me learn how to do be more urban, do more R and B. Because I was like a waterfall kid. I listened to James Taylor. and Really? You know, when I go in my car on Sundays, I love to listen to James Taylor. So yeah. I did like acoustic music. I like John Denver. Oh, um, so I like Bread. Great pop songs. <laughs> yeah, so Ridiculous. I was like, and the Beatles. So I would do that, and I would always would be on my acoustic guitar, so things would be prettier in that sense. And then I'd write slow songs that were pretty that way, so... Mm. So I was just kind of on, on a different page. When did you get into the Beatles? Back same time I was into um, Smokey. Smokey. Same yeah. Because we had a black station that was WTLC, and then we had the pop station, which was WIFE. So on Sundays when I would go to church, as soon as the choir would be done, I'd go sit in the car, and I wouldn't listen to TLC because it'd be just nothing but church music. So yeah. that's when I got educated with pop music. That's where I first heard James Taylor. Wow. And listened to the pop stations. What, what were the James Taylor songs and Beatles songs that kind of pulled you in? You've Got a Friend. You know? mm, yeah. um, Beatles, it was everything from I Want to Hold Your Hand to ultimately Yesterday and everything. It was everything the Beatles did. Really gorgeous sounding. Yeah, it was just great copyrights, bottom line. I was just so- soaking all of it in. It it's, didn't always have a place to put it, but yeah. I still soaked it in. Well, I got to say, and I, I want to play a song from much later mm-hmm. in your career that you wrote and produced for, for Whitney Houston. I want to play it because it made me think when you were talking about that, like coming out of church and with the choir and then tuning into, you know, hearing James Taylor and these things. It's yeah. like in your music, I feel like I really hear like the combination into the personalness mm-hmm. of the singer-songwriter thing. And I know you're famous for love songs, but in a lot of ways, sometimes your love songs to me feel greater than just romantic love. Mm-hmm. It, it feels almost like a devotional kind of right, thing. Yeah, yeah. And Exhale, which you wrote for Whitney, I always uh-huh. felt, I won't play a little of that, always yeah. struck me that way. Sometimes you laugh, sometimes you cry. Life never tells us the winds are wild. When you've got friends to wish you well. Oh my God, if there is such thing as a perfect song, uh-huh. that's it. I love it though. I remember in writing this, because I was thinking like of songs that you've seen in other films that were haunting. And it was a couple of years before that, Bruce Springsteen did The Streets of Philadelphia. Mm. And it was a haunting kind of feel. Yeah. So I wanted this to have a haunting kind of thing and wasn't exactly sure I was going to do it. And this song wasn't necessarily always supposed to happen because Whitney hadn't necessarily always agreed that she would sing on this album. Yeah. So this is kind of like one of the last ones to show up, you know, because we ultimately needed a theme song for it, but until she sung, it wasn't going to be one. I did. I worked hand-in-hand with... Um, Forrest Whitaker, who checked, who listened to every song. So right. I, I was down at this production offices 
And um, I had my whole rig there, and he'd bring in something for me to put some music to. And that's and he, he'd give me a reference of something that he wants something like. There was never a reference for anything like this, but everything else there might have been a reference to. Yeah. And uh, and then I had to kind of write for the scene and see if it, it would fly. And um, I think almost every time I did something, he, he always liked it. So. And we did all this without Clive being a part of it, Yeah, which was very chancy. <laughs> um, but it was for the film. So, but this was the first time I actually ended something in the Clive where Clive had no notes. I don't have Clive ears, but yeah, yeah. still, I, I know that's a perfect song. Well, it just felt good, you know, and and it was also at an interesting time with Whitney because she wasn't singing as strong and as you know the big songs. Yeah. So it was it was nice to come in and do something chill, opposed yeah. to going for the the big, you know. Uh, I'll always love you, or the yeah, all the powerhouse the kind of. it, it. So, it was it was great to do a left turn. Yeah, like there's so much wisdom in that, and I mean, where does where does a song like that come from? It comes from watching the movie. It comes from watching and watching the relationship with these girls, and and imagining what what Whitney's character would say mm. to those those people. So, a lot of times you find wisdom in just watching people. And, and and watching how they how they love or how they hurt and hmm. and how how they fuck up you know yeah and and there's something that you can you can take from that and the one thing I would say today is that in terms of writing what's what I see in writing today I see a lot of kids like I think Sis is like an excellent writer yeah it's, it's her, her not just her melodies but her words and how she says them. How her words are today, how people would talk and how people think. She does it in such a clever way. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm like a student of that at this particular point, learning that, uh, because we were able to write simpler things before. And say these words and the and, and the simplicity of it was was enough. Today it's got to be a little bit more. Yeah. It's a little bit more clever and a little bit more how people think and how people talk today. Right. It doesn't. We don't talk the same way. Yeah. Uh, we don't hear the same way. Right. And so I think because of that, I won't say easier to do. It was just of the time, I think. It was just different. I mean, it's funny because I don't think people in the 90s necessarily talk like people in the 50s or 60s either, but no. there was a universality still to music that could, yeah. you know? But I do think things have changed. I, I, don't, I don't know that, obviously that music still connects to people today and kids are re still finding it and they don't necessarily it still talks to them it's just that when you're doing something today you need to talk to them how they talk on their level yeah we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back with my conversation with Babyface. apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. 
The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more of my conversation with Babyface. What was the creation of Girls' Night Out. Like, I can hear Babyface on this new yeah. record, but to your point, I can definitely also hear you trying to f- do what you do within the context of right. what the singers of now world. are doing. Their world, yeah. Yeah. The actual concept of Girls' Night Out came from my partner uh, who, who helped me put the record together. It was Rika. And so she had come to me and said, you know, after we did Verses, uh, and versus you and me, me Teddy Riley versus them. <laughs> I, I got so many more new followers and, and a lot of younger ones and and so she was like you know you got to figure out a way to connect with them you got yeah. you know you can't just do what you've done before because it won't really speak to them so maybe the best way to connect with them when you're writing and everything is to work with younger artists like Excel maybe you work with girls again yeah and you connect that way but don't just Write it for them. Write with them. Mm. You know, collaborate with them. Yeah. Make sure you're speaking their language and they're speaking, and and you guys can actually work together. And and that's ultimately what it came down to. We went in the studio with each artist. Basically, had a day to do it, uh, a day to write it, and a day to basic get the basic recording. You'd bring in a concept, maybe. And then no, or, no, we no. start right there. Go fresh. That's great. Um, Was it nerve wracking to go in like that? No, it was it was either going to work or not, you know. There was no pressure. It was like, you know, we tried, and, and if it didn't, it didn't work. There's some, some people we came, we couldn't figure it out. And some people, we figured it out, but we had to come back and finish it up in terms of overdubs and things. Yeah, but, yeah. but the basic idea of every song was always done in that day. Wow. And that was kind of the magic of it a little bit. I mean, look, do I feel like I did an album full of hits? No. I did a, an album full of moments and those moments that we that whatever happened in that moment that's what that's what we came out with and we tried to make it the best that we it could be would you think about music 
previously like that? Like, oh, is this an album full of hits versus, or, or were you well, always doing moments? Well, well sometimes you, you, you do want to necessarily do hits. You do want to do something that's going to like really kind of hit everybody and connect, hit everybody in the room. Yeah. And if it's not there, then you want to keep working on it and get it, you know. And we didn't have that luxury. We just kind of like, this is it. Yeah. This is a moment and we'll roll with it. Yeah. So in that sense, I do I think I could have maybe even made it better. Yeah, if I had the time. But we just took that moment, and that was kind of like the, the experience yeah. itself, you know, sort of saying. And because of that, you know, also not just working with, you know, the girls, but also working with some younger producers that come with tracks and things that, that allowed me to also kind of like get into that and build from there as well. So it, it was all an effort of trying to speak to an audience that I don't normally speak to, but speak to them through another form of artistry, so to say. Yeah. Collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Out of any of those collaborations, do you think you forged any, you know, lasting relationships? Yes, no question. And uh, th- I'm sure we'll do more work together. And, and that that's great. So I think that the the process was fun and the results was, you know, came out nice. So came out great. I got to say, like, you know, it's interesting. Rolling Stone recently put out, a, like, a list of, like, 200 greatest yeah. singers. And I looked at the list, and I was like, yeah, it's not. It's like something like Aretha at one. That makes sense to yeah. me and some other things. But I started making it just jotting down, like, what, what do I think are my favorite singers? And I started putting them down. I'm like, man, you know, like, maybe it's just a time thing. But I didn't really have anyone beyond the 90s. And I, I started thinking, I don't think it was because I'm biased towards that music. But and not that there's no good R and B singers now. I think there's some great singers, but there's no vehicle sometimes. I think these days for like for a great vocalist to show how great their vocals are. Yeah. But it sounds to me on this record like you really. I I don't know. I realized like man, you really know how to work with singers because these days there's a lot of effects on voices yeah, yeah. and things. But you still found a way to kind of create something where they could really drive the song, man. Yeah, I think it's it's that's just emotion. So, and it's it's not about how many rips you do or anything. It's really just about how, how emotional can you get on it. Yeah, to feel like you've been given something. There are a lot of really good vocalists, uh, girls that can uh, sing today. There, there's a lot of them, and it's like there weren't that many back in the day. You know, we yeah. we could just count on. You know, we there was Brandy, there was Monica, there was Whitney, you know, Deborah Cox, and yeah. you know, we, we had a few. Yeah. But not as many as there are today. There's yeah, so many Jay. girls yeah. that can really blow, and what some people that we don't know, and even as many, just as many that you can find on on TikTok or the singing wasn't like that before. Also, the difference in terms of like how even with how it used to be so rare to find whether it's a white kid or that they could sing, sing, yeah. and, and really have riffs, yeah. And uh, that changed completely. Yeah. You know, like you could find so many of these kids, like these young white kids, that can like clearly blow. Yeah. And that it sounds like they grew up on gospel almost yeah, sometimes. Mean, yeah. And that was clearly just left for, you know, initially there was a Tina Marie who was that who was that girl then. Right. She, know, Sheena. You, you yeah, know. yeah. And Sheena, she was more. Yeah, she got a little past sometimes. <laughs> uh, Lisa Stansfield got a, a little bit of a pass. But not clearly, not like, not like Tina, not like Tina, not like Celine Dion, yeah. who came and just kind of tore it up and so really have like could move their voice where, where Whitney would say, okay, she could sing, <laughs> yeah, you know? right. So, um, right. 
And that that all changed. And I think I think it was McDonald's. But anyway, um, you think it was McDonald's? Yeah, I'm just that message. <laughs> I'm loving it. Something happened. <laughs> something was in the water. Um, but I think overall, just I mean, what the real answer is is that black music and and R and B. So it became so infectious that when people listen to things enough that it becomes part of them. Yeah. You know, and the same thing applies for even like overseas, even for like the uh, K-pop. Yeah. These kids oh, man, come there, on. You know, and that was you, man. I mean, I feel like we should say that flat out because it, you I, may not want to, you know, I, and I, others, and others. I, I was in the group with other people. And that, others. No like, question, help, help influence. It's like there was a point where R&B was on the charts as like race music, you know. By the 90s, 90s it was it was all included 90s it was there was not re- you could you couldn't tell the difference hardly between the R&B chart and the pop chart yeah because what was black was also pop as well yeah Bobby Brown and and Boyz II Men and you know even I had some things that were in pop ch- at the top 10s that I, I didn't even, I didn't know that Whippapill was a top 10 pop hit you won album of the year 1990 yeah. 1991 I didn't know I, I didn't know it even touched that stuff so because I always thought of it just R&B. So, but there was a point when it was that. Now it's um, it's changed again. But where, um, I mean, hip hop is the one thing that's we got, you always got to keep watching things because you don't know how things will slide. Yeah. But, but the influence is is crazy, and it has been, and it always has been. So when when speak, people speak of the future of R&B and the future of just black music in general it's always here because it's always influencing it always is and you know what's funny man it's like you know rock and roll and hip hop take a lot of air out of the room yeah um, and they're great you know no doubt but when you think about it R&B really is like the great American art form because if you go back 1940 Louis Jordan 1950s Ray Charles 1960 you got uh, Motown Stax yeah. all those great Atlantic artists in the 70s with you know Stevie finally really come out you know, like Earth, Wind and & Fire and you know then the 80s yeah come on man R&B is kind of always right there it started here it, it's in everything so it always has been so and I think that's that people get they get tunnel vision on just one particular sound and one particular thing I love the changes and I love to see people experimenting with it and, and, and growing making letting it grow yeah so can I play a deal song sure Sweet November yeah I'm gonna play a little just a little bit of it yeah, I yeah. feel like this has something to do with, with your name but <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a great song. I wrote that right out of high school. Out of high school? Yeah, I was. It was because um, I was a man child, so it was second year, or something seventy eight or so, uh, seventy eight, seventy nine, right in that time. So it was, it was a girl. <laughs> it was like this one girl. She was like the most. While we were in high school, we were really good friends. And there's no way I would have ever thought I would have been with her. But when I got out of high school, we we started talking, and then we actually started dating. I remember Daryl was like, how, how is this even happening? How do you have her? And 
Then I remember we went to go see Brooke Shields' Endless Love. We saw Endless Love together. And then something happened, I think, right before we were going out, going away in Manchild. All of a sudden she stopped calling me and I couldn't, I couldn't reach her. And I don't know what happened, but it was just like, we were just like broken up. And then there was no cell phones. There was no good. You couldn't reach her on the phone. No social media. It was just done. (laughs) And I was really messed up about it. And, and that's when I wrote this, you know, cause you know, that was the time period. It was in the fall. And so then I was thinking maybe, maybe when I come back, maybe, Maybe this November we'll get back together and find it. So that was actually a, a love song that was written way back then. Would you have written the words, or would, would you write the I words with first? The piano and wrote it. Sat the piano. Yeah. Wow. So, because it's kind of beautiful, even just divorced from the music. If you just look at the words, yeah. it's like it's high level, you know. Yeah, it was uh, when Autumn first arrived. You were my lady. We, <sighs> we were dating. It was the second rain of autumn we shared a feeling. Yeah. Come on, that's... Uh-huh. It was like it, we started dating and then all of a sudden we like... I remember it was raining. And uh, like, looks like something's going to happen here. Yeah. It's like... Which, that's an interesting song because that... The history of this song, too, is also that... It's the song that ultimately got me to be able to sing on the Dill album. Mm. Because I did this... I, I recorded this song, did the demo... I had always always had the song, but when I got in the deal, I actually demoed it. And this isn't very far from the demo at all. And so um, when we were working on the second album for the deal, Reggie Calloway from Midnight Star was supposed to produce our album, and he did not because they had fell out with our manager, and our manager was the same manager they had, so they didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with this. So it was suddenly in our hands, me and L.A.'s hands, to... Dick Griffey said, you guys should produce it. And we were a little afraid, but we thought we'd try. And this song I had submitted to Dick Griffey to see if I could place it on the whispers. I also sent this song, gave this song to Luther, hoping that he would sing it. Wow. And he never answered on it, but I got a, a cassette tape to him so he would potentially do it too wow and so it never got to the whispers because dick griffey had heard it and he said who is this and they told him well, this is you know kenny i wasn't babyface yet kenny yeah, uh, yeah and he goes this is kenny he goes so why give this whispers why don't you guys do this song on your album and then la says well we don't have anybody that can sing it i said what are you talking about you got who's singing who's singing this he said Oh, that's Kenny singing it. He said, well, how come he ain't singing it? He said, because he's not a lead singer. And Dick said, that's stupid. He should be singing. Then L.A. had to have a group meeting to see if I could sing. And once they had the group meeting, uh, they voted me not to sing. Still. Wow. I had no problem with it because I wasn't trying to be a singer. Every time I was doing these songs, it wasn't like I was thinking I was going to do a record with it. Yeah. It's just me writing songs. Yeah. It's what, you, it's what you do. Yeah. And so Dick Griffey came back and said, well, if this ain't on the album, if he ain't singing it, then you you guys ain't got no album. So that's how I was able to sing Sweet November on that album. 
what were they saying? You can't sing. <laughs> You're not a lead. I mean, well, it's, it's a beautiful they, vocal. They didn't want me to sing because they were already two lead singers. Got it. Okay. So it was a it's a power thing. Yeah, cop, you know, like look, we got our singers. Yeah. We don't need any any more confusion. And I got that. I wasn't. I did not join the group to be, be a singer. Yeah. At all. And so, Sweet November is ended up being that song that you know, it's a heartfelt song, but a song that ultimately got me to start singing in the group to begin with. And it kind of solidified your name, right? Well, the name was had nothing to do with that. The name just came because everybody in the deal had a great name. There was L.A., K.O., D., Carlos, Stick, and Kenny Edmonds. <laughs> and we were looking around trying to find names. We tried Romeo, not really it, and... Couple other names they're throwing. Nothing, nothing was sticking, until one day L.A. and K.O. were in the studio working with Bootsy, helping Bootsy do a demo. And I walked in the studio, and Bootsy looks at me, he goes, "Babyface," and that was kind of like where it started. I didn't like the name; I thought it was a little soft, and I didn't like it all. But he said "Babyface" anyway. So then, uh, this was probably in '85, so much after the song. So we're like in. Now, 85, we're out on tour. So D goes, one night, I would sing this song every night. One night, he'd go, that's Kenny Edmonds, give it up to Kenny Edmonds. And, you know, there'd be a little bit of love, a little bit of something. But then one night, he said, give it up to Babyface. It was a completely different reaction. And that night, a whole bunch of girls came back looking for Babyface. (laughs) I sung that song every night the same, I swear. It was not any different. But singing it as Babyface suddenly made it a whole nother thing, which just taught us the lesson of just being commercial, a name and everything. Branding. Uh, branding. Yeah. You know, so it, it was a lesson, and, and I became very comfortable. When the girls came back, I was comfortable with having the name Babyface at that point. Yeah, yeah. No questions. So that song was really personal. Yeah. Exhale was more from watching the movie watching the movie you don't necessarily have to write from personal experience you can you can but you you can watch others and no yeah it's it's really about watching others and and how they how how they feel and how they imagining having to go through that i'm always asked how are you able to write for women yeah and said if you just kind of think of it and think of whatever they go through and think of how you'd feel you know it's not that hard to figure out Damn, that's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> that feeling, you know. Yeah. I think I'll write about that, you know. Yeah. And as a kid that was always falling in love and thinking I was in love. Feeling like you were in love. Um, you know, that's what it was. I mean, my very first song was about a girl named Rhonda Newbold. I always say her name. And that was in Here I Go Falling in Love Again. And the second song that I wrote that I clearly remember was about the same girl which was two years later from sixth grade to eighth grade because she broke my heart, was called The Bitter Taste of Life. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, those are feelings that I that I had, and everything was exaggerated. I had written a song called So Shy. So there were piece, there would be pieces of things, of songs that I would write. I wrote a song called Tanita, wrote a song called Shelly. One of the best songs I ever wrote was a song called Last Song Forever, which was... I wrote that when I was in my senior year. Can Never recorded it. I think some. I think I let a group record it as they turned it into a gospel. Record. Do you remember any of it? 
Yeah. Could you play a little of it? I don't know what my voice is like right now. But... When I think of special thoughts, I remember special feelings we shared. When I think of special moments, those were special times you told me you cared. senior year wrote that song for a girl that that liked me for a long time and it's funny it's interesting it was it was a it was a um white girl that liked me and in high school at that time it was like you don't do you don't do that yeah and we were friends and we and we did music together. We liked doing music together. And Daryl and and everybody, we'd go in, to her house and write write music and create music. And so we always vibed with each other. And she really got a crush on me. She was like, she lived really close to the school, and I lived so far away. She was like asking, "Let me come over to your house and pick you up and take you to school in the morning." And she wanted to do everything in the world for me. And I was like, "That's great," but I didn't want this girl to. I don't want to see him around the neighborhood picking me up and stuff. And so I was like, yeah. and I just realized at the point I was like being very, it was almost like reverse racism to a certain extent yeah, yeah, yeah. for me. And I was like. Well, because it was, would have brought a lot of heat, I'm sure. Right? Yeah, it would have brought like, heat. And back then they, they call you Toms and stuff like that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in our school, that was just, you know, it wasn't like it was, it never happened, but it would sometimes. So one point she had gone away to on a spring trip. So she went down to Florida or something. And when she was gone, I really missed her. So I thought to myself, you know what? Forget it. I don't care. I don't care what what color she is. I don't care. Any- when she comes back, I'm going to tell her, let's do this. Yeah. And she came back. She had a tan. She was fine as ever. <laughs> but I waited too long. When she came back, she had changed. At that point, she wasn't interested. Oh. anymore because she had tried and so she she finally met someone else yeah i waited too long and then that was it and then i wrote that song and it was just interesting to me because it's like you know when someone's pushing for you to like you and trying to like you and you're pushing them away for for reasons not because of how you feel but because of what everybody else thinks yeah and when if i had to just not cared about that yeah then it, maybe it would have been different. But then it, had that not happened, I don't know if I had written the song. So. You wouldn't have the best song you ever wrote. <laughs> How many other great songs do you have sitting? I'm not sure. I, I, there's a lot of things I can remember back in those days. 
just stuff I've written on the guitar. I can go through things and see songs that I've written over the years that I don't necessarily love. Yeah. But it feels like a lot of the things that I wrote that were heartfelt from the guitar, I, I don't necessarily think they're necessarily commercial songs, but they're songs that I love, you know. Yeah, you did that record playlist like uh, maybe 15 or so years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of more like, it was sort of more just you and an acoustic in, in, yeah. in a way. It was covering some of the, the, the yeah, songs some that some of the things that inspired me. You know, but do, doing a record of like that with the originals would be... Yeah, maybe. Would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Capture a moment. <laughs> right. Throughout it all, there were songs that I would I would write and, and these feelings that I would have, you know, as a kid. And uh, that's what the whole idea of Waterfall came yeah. from the, doing things like that. Yeah. We're going to pause for a quick break and then come back with the rest of my conversation with Babyface. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of my interview with Babyface. You didn't mention her name, but the girl that you wrote Sweet November for, do you ever know what happened to her? Did you ever figure that out? Yeah, she's, uh, she lives in Indianapolis. And okay. Did, and, and did I ever follow up and ask about what happened? I did. She said she had just met someone else and felt felt really bad about how how it ended. And okay. I don't really care. I even met with Rhonda Newbolt. I met with her 
from the whole sixth grade thing. That's a whole long story. And I actually talked to her as, as well because I wanted to see. I was so interested to find out if my memory was the same. Yeah. It did. Did things happen the way that I thought they happened? It, did they kind of remember it, it the was, same? It was pretty close. Pretty close. It was, okay. pretty, it was pretty, pretty on it, which was mind blowing to me that I, you know, that I really remembered it kind of the right way. Yeah. So. Wow. It seems like you carry things, you know, like with you. My memory of those days stay with me because there was something very powerful about when you're young and when you're in love and how powerful that is and that that feeling you want to die you know that's like when i wrote breathe again i was writing from that perspective of like thinking you know if you leave me i'll never breathe again yeah and that kind of desperate thing that kids feel because it's the first time and it's like everything is you know amplified by a million yeah and i used to love to go to that space sometimes if i'm writing a love song a heartfelt love song then it's great to go to that space to you know as, as a reference yeah you know for those feelings so you can conjure up that yeah same. so as i carry these stories i carry those feelings too amazing you know and able to to call on those in that way maybe we, we should listen just a bit of breathing huh? I love hearing your songs. If you if you're cool with it. <laughs> that song was when I was writing it. I, I did the music first. And I was writing in Lococo, and I was actually writing it for another artist, writing for an artist named uh, MacArthur, who was Melvin Gentry, who was part of Midnight Star. And initially, I was coming up with the track for his album. And then, as I did that, and those chords came to me, and, then, and those lyrics came in my head, I said, oh, no, this is not for him. <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a Tony song, you know? And then, all of a sudden, it just you know, like flushed in wow. the whole idea of it. And and I was able to go back to that that little kid, you know, that was like destroyed in eighth grade and, and thinking of those words. And that's, that's how, you know, you go to those moments and that's how you can revisit those feelings again and again. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be what's going on in your life now. It can, it can be about either watching someone or going back to the actual feeling that you may have had at some point. Yeah, wow. Can you tell me about your relationship with Daryl Simmons? It seemed like a strong partnership you guys had, man. Yeah, Daryl's a great guy. Daryl, I knew him since I was in, I think, ninth grade. He used to come over to my house. He was friends with my brother when I was in eighth grade, and he used to come over. And uh, his memory of me was that he had heard that I had a microphone. <laughs> and... Uh, they had a band and I think I had a microphone and my brother Michael played guitar as well and so they started this band and uh, I was still playing guitar a little bit but the guitar electric guitar I had I shared it with my brother Michael and Michael would take the guitar and leave it on at rehearsal all the time it's the wrongest in the world but it was when I first kind of met Daryl where he was like wanting me to be in the band but my my brother Michael, he voted against it because he still wanted me in it. So 
it was a little bit later where we met me and my other friend, Emmanuel Officer, where we had just became this little singing thing called The Elements. And we had this group called The Elements, which all of it's a long story, but basically Daryl joined that group and we became, you know, friends. And, and I was always a writer and Daryl sometimes would be around. He, he helped me write. And, and then sometimes it wasn't that he would help me write. It's just that his being there made all of a sudden I would think of something. Sometimes wow. you have a person that doesn't always write the songs, but them just being there all of a sudden you think of something that you wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. You know, it's just their energy yeah. that kind of helps in songwriting. I think it was a communication thing. That's just like the way you guys communicated. Like. Uh, yeah, it's just one of the kind of things. I don't. You just might think of a word that you, but you might be joking around or something, and then all of a sudden the word hits you. Yeah. They help, kind of help you get your creative juices going. It's not always, particularly always, just songwriting and stuff. Sometimes it's just that vibe. And, yeah. And you know we've been friends ever since. Uh, I have a few friends, a couple friends for sure, that um, I've known since I was a kid. You know. And uh, um, that's rare yeah. to have, you know, yeah. to be friends with people for that long. Well, especially when you're in, inhabiting the world that you're you're in, it must, yeah, yeah be really grounding and great. To... It's uh, it's it's a blessing in that way, and not everybody is is in it. Like, it's just having somebody from Indianapolis that kind of knew you yeah. when you're growing up and and seeing you change, you know, seeing seeing you go through the changes in your life and who you become, yeah, and who you were at the time. So, do you still write with them ever? We don't write that much together, but we we talk all the time. Talk, yeah. When like when was the last time you guys got together? And I think uh, I mean there was part of the the love marriage divorce album and, and tender uh, return of the tender love. He did some writing with me there. Okay, it's been the last ten years or so. Yeah, it's I think when you're a writer that's writing today and you're constantly writing with younger writers, the writing kind of changes, and so you lean towards other people in terms of like when you because it. it because they're, they're speaking differently. Speaking differently. And if you're not doing it on a continuous basis, what you have to offer isn't quite the same. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to ask, all the great singers you work with, you wrote a song that Aretha did, Willing to Forgive. Yeah. That was a hit for her. What was working with Aretha like? That was surreal to actually go in with Aretha Franklin. And she was so nice to me. She wasn't, she wasn't always nice to everybody. So that's why I felt privileged she was such a pro. She like you get, you maybe get one, you maybe get three runs down, maybe, but she'll come and say, "I'm gonna do it once, or I'm gonna do it twice, and that's it." You know, and uh, could you kind of direct her beforehand, say, "Hey, you know"? Uh, so every now and then she might let you, but for the most part, she just kind of like she'd do her homework and then she she'd go. I mean, she would been with me, and we we were able to do some things, but. I think probably my fondest experience with Aretha was was doing "Hurts Like Hell" for um, mm. uh, XL. Yeah, the way she she's that was a one time through. That and, was one time. Yeah. Wow. And it was just unbelievable. Oh. And I think my best work with her. And I ended up doing kind of the greatest hits records with her. With we were doing covers and stuff, but. To be honest, her voice wasn't quite the same anymore. It was like you could hear what she could, what she was trying to do. Yeah, but it wasn't quite the same anymore. But so having her have done that with "Hurts Like Hell" 
she loved the song and she and she sang it like she loved it. So. Her voice was still her voice at that yeah. point. In, in that Hearing it in like a just a, a in a studio space was yeah. It was like just like here. She just came in and she said, "Let's go, let's do it," and it was it was done. Unbelievable. Yeah. Can you tell me about the story of making "End of the Road"? So "End of the Road" was written for Boomerang. Went to see the movie before it was all the music was there, and there was one particular scene that I thought would have worked great, and we got the word that Boyz II Men might do the song so I definitely was writing the song in a very old Philly kind of you know way yeah so that whole that whole sound of Philadelphia so because that's where they were from so definitely writing in in that kind of like that and so as I as I started putting it together I had a little house in Atlanta that I would go to write up my songs for this project in general. And so I got it pretty far. I was pretty excited about it. I written down most of the words and stuff. And then I then I called Daryl over to see, asked, do I really got one? And Daryl was like, this is one. And so I demoed it and we, he, he helped me finish it up. And initially I thought the song was so strong, I almost considered trying to keep it for myself. You know, yeah. Because, but I wasn't going to be an artist on this boomerang thing. But hi- hindsight, no, there's no question it was supposed to be boys to men. When they started singing, and it was it was automatic. Yeah. So we just flew up there to Philadelphia. They were on tour, and they came in, had just one afternoon to sing it down, and uh, and that's how we that's that's how we started. Is it true that Wanye wasn't vocally in the best shape? Awanya was, uh, they were on tour, so he was like a little bit of a cold and stuff like that. And they were all kind of a little bit because they they were out there singing, but it was fine, you know, obviously. Yeah. It was new for all of us because, like, we hadn't worked with a group like that before. And so coming up with these parts, they were great because they could help come up with parts on top of it. And a lot of the notes were already there. Yeah. You know, because I had done the harmonies and stuff, and and then we built on top of it. And created on the spot. Yeah, and it, it it felt like it just felt like it was a natural thing. Yeah, you know, and it, it's ultimately that rolled over into you know, I'll make love to you. Yeah, incredible, man. Sitting up in my room at such a different groove from from yeah. from so many songs from that era, even. Yeah, it was sitting up in my room was once again going back to funky situation. You know, me trying to figure out how to do do funk. <laughs> you know way years later just trying to give something that was supposed to be just be one particular scene i think the the music that was there in the scene at first was Aaliyah back and forth yeah and i I needed to have something that just kind of grooved a little bit so that was what i came up with and i hadn't and i knew it was going to be for brandy so I was trying to imagine how she would sing it, you know. Yeah. And then when she came and sang it, I was blown away how good she is. That's such a cool vocal, man. <laughs> She's just so good. She's Brandy is so good. I think I can put Brandy up in the top ten of like singers in terms of studio singers. There aren't very many that can that are good as she is. Wow. There just aren't. Even at that young age. Even at that young age. There just aren't very many. She's like, she's a beast. Who else would you put on that list? 
I mean, some people you put on the list based off because their their vocals are just crazy. I mean, obviously Whitney, you know, yeah, because it's Whitney Houston. What I'm talking about is not just great voice, but also somebody just knows how to really just kill it every time. It yeah. just sounds almost perfect every time. I don't know that I can. Brandy's just one of those people. I think I was impressed by you know I was very impressed by uh, Money Long, and um, when she's singing Scissor, Scissor, yeah, ridiculous. So there are people that you know that just have it. I mean, the list could probably I could probably go down the list and give give more, but I would always just say that in terms of somebody I always feel that is underrated would be Brandy. Yeah. Is there, was there anyone you wanted to work with that you just missed? Like you mentioned Aaliyah. I was thinking, wow. Sade. You know, Sade. Sade. I've always wanted to work with her. I think, isn't she, she making music right yeah, now? Because she's got, yeah, no, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because she's got so much pain in her voice that I would love to work with that. So that, that that's the one that sticks always. Got it. Just want to play one more cut. So this, this was from the Preacher's Wife soundtrack, My Heart is Calling. This was, oh. this was Whitney. If I desire you, well, it ain't because I'm trying to. But every day with you, well, I swear it brings me closer to my only reservation is you, my sweet temptation, baby. It's incredible, man. I'd do it better today. What would you do different? The groove wasn't, the groove was good, but it wasn't like Whitney was all the way out of pocket with it as I wanted her to be. Uh, and I would have made this core stronger. Okay. Yeah. Was it tough working with Whitney? Like, was it similar to Rita, where you would only get a couple takes? Or no, we... Whitney would she she'd work. Yeah. Our problem would be we'd be sitting around joking and laughing and stuff all the time. And then, oh, okay, it should work. <laughs> and uh, and then we finally get it done. But a lot of times we would just be always laughing about stuff. So one of the great joys of my life is that we got three Michael albums with Quincy. And then, uh, yeah. but one of my, I wish we could have got like a full Whitney babyface record, you know? Yeah, I think there would have been a shot at that, had she, you know, had she lived longer. We were certainly in talks of doing work together again. You guys were talking again. Well, Cl- Clive had called me and and said, you know, she's ready. I think she's about ready to do this. And, and then she, you know. And she, no. You know, she was, she was right on the, road of turning everything around and, and, and getting it back. When was that Clive call in comparison to? Um, maybe a month before. Yeah. Were you starting to collect songs already in your uh, head? Not yet. I was, wait, I was waiting to see if it was, it was true. Waiting to see whether her voice was back there. Because yeah. I wanted to do it with her when her voice was in shape. And, yeah. uh, and I wanted it, you know, because I, I loved working with Wendy. You know, so. Was there ever a chance to to do a, more work in the nineties, like beyond the soundtrack? Because it was a big gap. It was like nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety eight, and there's like a big yeah. Whitney I gap. think we were just. Um, I think she was just on a different page, and I was on a different page at that point. This, yeah, yeah. you know, so. oh, man, the way she interprets this, you're, you're... she was something Whitney's one of the greatest, no question. Man, well, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Appreciate you Appreciate doing it. this. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, this was great. Thanks again to Babyface for talking through his career and playing for us. You can hear a playlist of all of our favorite Babyface songs, along with others he's written and produced at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Colliday, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richman. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music. The strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says, we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is newstocktrend.com. That's newstocktrend.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.